Hello and welcome to episode nine of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski and I'm coming to you over the podcasting networks of iTunes, Google, and Spotify. Of course, you'll also be able to see a simulcast on YouTube where you'll be able to see the graphs we reference and some of the articles that Jeff wrote. Who is Jeff? The head of global research at Alhambra Investments, Jeff Snyder. Jeff, good to see you again. We're going to be talking about Japan this week because they went first. I think we've often heard of we're all becoming Japan, Japanification. And when it comes to monetary matters, they've been at the tip of the spear and have provided the world an example by which to follow or ignore. Well, in your article, there was never a need to translate Weimar into Japanese. You talk about the lessons learned and mostly unlearned or not learned. Yeah, Mayo, good morning. And I think that's, that's the important point about Japan. You're right. They always seem to go first, and yet, you know, they're not an example to follow. They're an example of what to avoid or what not to do. Yet, for some reason, that's what everybody ends up doing anyway. It, it's, it's as if there are no alternatives out there. There's no alternatives uh, intellectually or, you know, technically even. But, so Japan's an interesting case to understand so as to understand not only where we are, but how we got here. I mean, where, where does all of this, you know, what is the foundation stuff behind, for example, quantitative easing? Where did that actually come from and how does that play into the, uh, the, the situation that we're in across, the, you know, not just the United States, but Europeans and everywhere else, quantitative easing has gone global, despite the fact, as you pointed out, there's this Japanese example to, to have avoided. <laughs> well, let's, let's get into it. And we're going to have a third person assisting us today. And that's going to be Mr. Friedman, of course. And you use his article from, when was it, uh, Jeff? When did you write that article? Well, it was originally in 1997, late 97, but it was reprinted and widely distributed in, in early 98 through the Hoover Institute. And it made a, it caused a lot of stir, a big stir at the time because it was a pretty radical, at least it was thought to be a radical approach. But essentially Milton Friedman's uh, view was that, listen, hey dummies, low rates does not equal stimulus. You know, it's his famous interest rate fallacy that he first brought up and caused a big stir in 1967. And he said, you guys have got it all wrong. Low rates mean tight money. High rates mean low, uh, loose money. And of course, he was absolutely right because, you know, just after you know, 1967 was the beginning of the great inflation. And how did interest rates behave during the 1970s and the great inflation? We associate loose money with, with low interest rates because that's what we're told and that's what we're taught. But he was right. I mean, he was, he was proven right right away in the 1970s. Interest rates skyrocketed as inflation got out of control. So loose money, high rates, tight money, low rates. Now what, the, what he pointed out in the article is that the Japanese Bank of Japan had done, taking the subservient role to the government, and then, you know, I didn't go to it into the article, but there's a lot of political history involved here, where the Bank of Japan technically was not an independent uh, government agency at the time. But regardless, monetary policy from the crash in 1990 until around 1997, 1998, was, a, was almost an afterthought. Basically what the Bank of Japan did was they did what the economics textbook said. You lower interest rates and that equals stimulus. So those lower interest rates, those lower money rates set by the Bank of Japan were meant to aid the fiscal, the fiscal side, which was the, bank, it was the Japanese government going crazy spending on all sorts of things. 
Now, initially, Friedman didn't, he ascribed a lot of power and importance to the Bank of Japan. And from the article I read, which is called uh, Reviving Japan, uh, you can find it at the Hoover Institution, April 30th, 1998. He is ascribing a lot of power to the Bank of Japan. And he's saying that they conducted policy appropriately during the 70s and 80s. They managed the money supply up and down. And so that was sort of interesting is that they, he thought that they did have a lot of power. Jeff, what do you think? Were they actually managing the money supply up and down in their country? They were more than uh, maybe most people realize, but probably less than Milton Friedman <laughs> assigned. You know, Friedman, there's a lot to like about Milton Friedman. There's, all, there's a lot to dislike. And we'll get to the to dislike in a minute here. But he's, he's looking at, you know, he called the, the you know, the, the, the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve, the high tide of the Federal Reserve is the 1920s. So before the Great Depression, he thought the U.S. Federal Reserve had done a bang up job. And he said what he saw was that the Bank of Japan was doing the same things in the, in the 70s and 80s as the Federal Reserve had been doing in the 20s. So if he thought that, you know, the, the 1920s in the U.S. was the high tide of the Federal Reserve, he obviously was going to think the same thing about the Bank of Japan. Now, most rational and you know, unbiased and uh, honest people would say, well, wait a minute. You know, just like the 1920s in the U.S., 1980s in Japan was awfully bubbly. And in fact, that was the main cause of the problem to, be, to begin with was a property and, and credit bubble that just absolutely collapsed. So it's, it's tough to reconcile that reality with Friedman's, you know, Friedman's uh, uh, opinion that both central banks in their bubble periods were performing really well. But he's right. I mean, there is some truth to it. And that's usually the case with a lot of these. You know, John Maynard Keynes is another one. You may not like the way that uh, he, he, he followed his own advice into probably the wrong direction where a government-centric approach. But a lot of what, what drove Keynes in that direction was correct. The same thing with Friedman. The attention to the monetary system and not just, you know, glossing it over with interest rates. There, that was where he really provided a lot of value, where I think a lot of people can follow, if maybe not follow him all the way to his end conclusions. And so when I was reading his article, he, there's a nice table in there. So Friedman in this table, what I really liked is that he is showing that during a golden period, that money was expanding. And therefore, the economy was expanding, income, prices, output. And that made a lot of sense. But you'll notice in the table, there's a, there's a footnote, footnote A. And he defines money as M2 plus CDs for the year earlier than the indicated period. And that was my first clue. That was the moment when I said, hold up, wait a minute, something ain't right. M2 plus CDs, that's not a good definition of money. So that's when I began to wonder whether or not Friedman was defining money correctly. Was the Bank of Japan more clued in? Were they looking at a much broader uh, definition of, of money? Yeah, in one sense they are, but I don't know if it's broad enough. The Japanese, again, you know, we put, talk about at the open here that the, the pioneer approaches. The Japanese have been more attuned to broader money supply metrics. Now, whether they go far enough is a completely different debate. And I think in, in, in the case of analyzing Japan, especially in the 90s, it almost doesn't matter. I think, you know, the central point Friedman was making was they took their eye off the ball. Because at one point they tried, you know, as the Federal Reserve used to do, 
they try to manage base money or the money supply in, in, a, in a very uh, specific and, and um, rudimentary format. What, however, got out into M2 and CDs and all these more complicated topics that you and I talk about all the time, the euro dollar system, um, there was still more attention paid in Japan to the monetary supply issue that sort of seemed to go away once, you know, 1987 and afterward the bubble collapsed. And it was as if the Bank of Japan said, okay, we're just going to lower interest rates and hope for the best. That was essentially their solution to what was a massive, enormous uh, bursting of of an asset and credit bubble was we'll just lower interest rates and we'll let the government take care of the bulk of it by spending like drunken sailors. And that's what I was wondering was it seemed, according to Friedman, like the Bank of Japan was following the money. Great. That's what a central bank should be doing. But then all of a sudden, in the 90s, they stopped and they switched to interest rates. And I, and I couldn't quite reconcile it. And maybe you know the answer why they would have done that. Was it simply because they saw, well, that's what the Federal Reserve is doing since the 80s. That's what the Bank of England has done since 1971. Do you know why the Bank of Japan gave up on the idea of focusing on money supply? Well, it's a, again, it's, it's a complicated issue of history. And remember, the, keep in mind, the Bank of Japan was not an independent agency at the time. There was a lot of, of blame going around that, uh, contrary to Milton Friedman, the bubble was assigned to the Bank of Japan. And the, a lot of people in the government said, hey, you guys screwed this up. We're sidelining you. We, we're putting you off to the sideline because, look, you got us in this mess to begin with. So just lower interest rates and stay out of the, stay out of the way for us. We'll fix your mess. So there was a lot of that that happened. There was also some, you know, the Bank of Japan realizing they were in real serious trouble and then reaching out around to, uh, to central bankers around the world and saying, well, what do you guys do? We're over here trying to manage the money supply. It led to this great disaster. What do we do? Well, what is Alan Greenspan going to say? Oh, all you need to do is move them interest rate. You got, that's all you, it's powerful stimulus. Just lower the, the benchmark money rate and that'll be fine. So, it, you know, it's, 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 you know, I'm oversimplifying, but a lot of it was, hey, things didn't work. What do we do now? And so Bank of Japan was in some ways sidelined and in other ways they were trying to do what everybody else was doing. And what happened was they completely changed their approach and left it so that through this lost decade of the 90s, mostly what they did was lower their benchmark rate. Regardless of whether or not that worked, it was, that, that's what they did. And that was what Friedman's, that's what caused Milton Friedman in 1997, reprinted in 98 to start to, to say, hey, we gotta, you guys got to do something different here. If you want to get out of this, 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 uh, this lost decade, this economic rut that you're in, you got to go back to paying attention to the money supply. And that's exactly what he said, is he wrote, and I'm going to quote him now, the surest road to a healthy re- economic recovery is to increase the rate of monetary growth, to shift from tight money to easier money, to a rate of monetary growth closer to that which prevailed in the golden 1980s. As you point out, they weren't that golden, or they were too golden, too frothy. But let's continue with Friedman. But without again overdoing it, great. That would make much-needed financial and economic reforms far easier to achieve. And that's why we're talking about this, Joe. You believe that that's what needs to be done in present day. That's what Milton Friedman believed needed to be done for the Bank of Japan. But then Milton Friedman offers 
a suggestion. Think, Emil, before you, before we go on, let's let's um, let's back up here a minute because, regard, you know, I think your, your initial impulse was right. You know, was Milton Friedman actually taking a look at the money supply as it was? You know, M two plus CDs. That seems kind of weird. That seems kind of you know. I think he was trying to get some sense of the monetary system. And what what what's really important in my view, and I think you share this view, is that okay, you know, set aside these M's, set aside the definitions. How do we know? Money supply is tight in the real economy. Well, yeah, we could try to recreate those those definitions. We could try to broaden them. We can do all those kinds of things. If you're a central bank, you have that kind of capability. But you don't even need to do that. Just look at the bond yields. Look at the government bond market, the rate for the risk-free. That told you everything you needed to know. And it, it's, it conforms specifically with Milton Friedman's interest rate fallacy. Bond yields in Japan fell throughout the 90s. And that was wrongly attributed most most times, especially in the mainstream media, to the Bank of Japan's rate cuts. That's not what was happening. What was happening was the banking system and the financial markets in general were holding the most liquid, safest instruments because money was tight. The very reasons that Milton Friedman cited in 1967 for why you see lower interest rates associated with tight money in the real economy. So regardless of whether we can measure through these MCDs, more money maker funds, the expanded M3s, the M4s, I think there's even an M5 in Japan. I mean, there's all of these M's. Regardless of whether they're appropriate or not, the bond market is where you should start. And what it was saying in the 90s, right up until 1997, was, hey, money's getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So regardless if Friedman got the right definition or not, he, he drew the correct conclusion, which was, the system is not be, is not responding to these these rate cuts because they are not accommodation and they're not stimulus. For those of you playing the making sense bingo, you will there is one square there where Jeff will reference this quote from Milton Friedman. It happens often enough. I'm not going to read all of it, but let me just read one sentence. Low interest rates are generally a sign that money has been tight, as in Japan high interest rates, that money has been easy. So that's what you were just referencing, Jeff. But speak to me as if I was a small child or a golden retriever. Why exactly do low interest rates signal that money is tight? We can go back to John Maynard Keynes, of all people, to really understand what's going on here. He in his book, uh, A General Theory, he, he, called, he called these liquidity preferences. And there's reasons why people, businesses, banks, they want to hold liquid instruments. And one of the reasons is transaction. You've got to have liquid balances because if you want to go to the grocery store or the gas station, you have to have money in your pocket in order to be able to do that. There's also an investment consideration. The investment consideration probably is, is, is a more of a, a, a more relevant to the topic of the banking system and that I'm going to hold liquid money because I have, you know, I'm a bank. I have customer deposits to make. I have my own, you know, I have my own business considerations to fulfill. However, if I've got liquid instruments and liquid cash and there's a better, there's an opportunity in the real economy for me to use that money where I can get a sufficient return adjusted for a perceived risk, then I'll, then I'll use that money in the real economy. I'll let that money flow out into the real economy because the return, the risk return environment is such that it makes sense to do that. It's always risk adjust. We got to keep that in mind. It's not just, oh, somebody's got this pie in the sky scheme where they're going to guarantee you 25% returns. Well, you know, that's, that's a low probability kind of a thing. So the risk is really high with that kind of, kind of a thing. So it's always about 
risk-adjusted perceptions of opportunities in the real economy to give up your liquid instruments, to give up your money that you're holding so that it, it flows out into the rest of the system. If you don't want to do that, if you think the, the risk-adjusted opportunities in the real economy aren't that good, then you tend to hold the most you know, liquid instruments, money equivalents, regardless of their, their low rates. And so that's what happens. If there's, if there's not an economic opportunity that makes sense according to risk in the real economy, the financial system in particular, especially in a place like Japan, which is totally bank-centered, then the banking system holds the most liquid instruments, the most money-like instruments, regardless of price and return, and, it, and everybody piles into the same thing, which has the effect of lowering risk-free rates, lowering lower risk yields all across the board. So the lower yields that you see where everybody's piled into the Japanese government bond market is a sign that money is tight everywhere else. Jeff, what you just described is what I believe most people uh, think the stock market does, that the stock market reflects that collective opinion regarding future economic opportunity. But you're saying, well, you didn't say don't look at the stock market, but you did say the bond market is where we'll find that answer. This is a little bit off topic, but is the equity market less insightful when it comes to this collective opinion regarding future economic opportunity than bond markets? Yeah, I think popular imagination has the stock market as the discounting mechanism about what's going on in the economy, but already it's, it's one, two, three, four steps removed from the real economy, and it has been over, more and more over time. You know, wh who's trading in the bond market? It's the banks who actually create money through their balance sheet and activities. And oh, by the way, their customers are real economy participants. So the bond market is situated right next to, if not directly inside the real economy. The stock market, who's in the stock market? Um, it's not at all the same thing. And most of what goes passes for, you know, how the stock market works in the financial services industry, it's not at all the same thing. It's not, it's not the same kind of discounting of real economic, especially real monetary conditions, which the banking system knows that nobody in the stock market side of things seems to even care exists. And I can tell you, I, I can, I can tell you personally that most people in the financial services industry really don't want to know what goes on behind the scenes. They just want to believe that, hey, stocks go up, everything's great, the market is the market, and we don't care what's going on in the bond market and the monetary system because there's this guy who's called the Federal Reserve Chairman who will take care of all that stuff for us. And as long as he does, we don't have to think too much about it. So the professional financial services industry has done a tremendous disservice by removing the stock market even further from on-the-ground conditions, which is the banks and the bond market and the real economy. Jeff Snyder, Chief Investment Officer of Alhambra Investments. That's, it's a registered investment advisor, and that's why Jeff says he has personal experience in uh, perceiving the popular perceptions. Jeff, Milton Friedman told us what the problem is. Step two, he offers us a solution. And here we go, right off the path and into the dark forest. Yeah, that, that's, that's, you know, there's a lot to admire about Milton Friedman, but there's a lot that makes you cringe. And here, this is a perfect example of both. So he got it right. I mean, whether you know, we talk about the, the, the money supply definitions, but the bond market, whatever your definition, monetary system in Japan was definitely tight in the 90s. And that caused the fact that they caused the lost decade, essentially. 
That's, you know, the reason why there was deflationary buildup, especially through 19, the mid-90s into 1997. So what do you do about it? Well, Milton Friedman went back to his book of monetary history, which was written in 1963, co-authored with Anna Schwartz. He said it's the same problem that the U.S. and the rest of the world ran into in the 1930s, where the Federal Reserve mistook low interest rates as stimulus and accommodation when, in fact, the money supply actually collapsed at that time. So the solution was, in both cases, according to Friedman, quantitative easing, which is nothing more than the Bank of Japan goes into the bond market, buys bonds, pays, pays for them with bank reserves, which has the effect of increasing the stock of base money. And this is where it gets into our, you, your, our, you are not, you know, our discussion about are the monetary definitions correct or not? Because it's one thing to say the money, the money supply system must be tight because we're seeing it in lower bond yields and we see some statistics. But when, where the rubber meets the road is if you're doing bank reserves, if you're doing quantitative easing, if you're raising the, the, the level of the central bank's balance sheet as a monetary response to a tight money problem, are you really sure that, that bank reserves are the same thing in this modern, highly fluid, highly fungible bank-centered system? Are bank reserves the same thing as base money? Well, for Milton Friedman, they were. There's no question in his mind they were. And that's what he recommended. He said, Bank of Japan, just do this quantitative easing. He didn't call it quantitative easing. That came later. But just do this bond buying program, expand your balance sheet, increase the level of bank reserves. There's nothing the Bank of Japan can't do because – Bank reserves are like printing money, printing what he called high-powered money. However, the issue is, is that the case? Did the Bank of Japan, increasing the level of bank reserves, did that actually create more high-powered money in the effective real economy sense? And if your definition of high-powered money includes bank reserves, then he did, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what economists say. It doesn't matter what central bankers claim. What matters is what the banking system actually does in, in its operations and how, how it actually carries out monetary um, programs, monetary goals, monetary uh, anything. So if bank reserves are your definition, but not the banking system's definitions, you've got a big problem. Couple of couple of points. One point that I learned in this article, you often make about the Federal Reserve's reserves, is that before the Federal Reserve began to act irresponsibly, quote unquote, and print money like crazy, the bank reserves, there were essentially no bank reserves in the system. So before the economy and money supply was expanding dramatically, no bank reserves. Afterwards, bank reserves are expanding dramatically and the economy, not so great. Well, it turns out that was the case in Japan as well. Beforehand, in your article, you show not very many reserves. Afterwards, a lot of activity by the Bank of Japan, lots of reserves, didn't really go anywhere. And then a devastating analysis by none other than the Federal Reserve, a couple of researchers in 2001 pointed out the obvious about QE, which is what you were just saying before, we, before I, I snuck in, quote, it is possible that the expanded money stock could stay on the books of the banks. Jeff, tell us a little bit about what the Fed here is saying. Well, they're just the same what we were just talking about, which is bank reserves might not actually be the form of money we think they are. What they're saying is that, yeah, you could, get, you could do these, this quantitative easing, you could do this kind of bond buying 
what you're doing essentially is taking bonds off the hands of the, of the banking system and giving them this, what we call cash, we call cash, the banks might not call cash, might, might not use as cash, but it's these forms of bank reserves. We're giving them bank reserves for bonds. That's all we're really doing. And what might happen is nothing. <laughs> it's entirely possible. They, this is November 2001, while quantitative easing was new. Um, Bank of Japan's first QE was in March of 2001. So, you know, eight months later, this, 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 these couple San Francisco researchers said, okay, we're going to give, we're going to take bonds, we're going to give them reserves, and that may end up with nothing. It might end up actually where nothing actually happens, except what they really said was the worst case, that this confirms that the situation is dire and the central bank doesn't really do anything about it. And therefore, the banking system just leaves those reserves on their books under, with the understanding that this deflationary type of, of, of condition is going to be prolonged. And then they alter their behavior, which is the worst of the worst case. So back in 2001, it, you know, while quantitative easing was new, there was at least some, you know, this, I don't think this was a widespread, widely held view, widely uh, recognized critique, but it's funny how, you know, these, these researchers got it right. What they were saying is, hey, Maybe quantitative easing is not what Milton Friedman was saying. Maybe it's not high-powered money. And that if for whatever, however we want to classify high-powered money, maybe the banking system is ultimately the arbiter of what counts as money in the system. That's what they were saying in 2001. You know, the bank reserves were swapping things around, but, you know, we got to be prepared for the, for the case where nothing actually happens, which is exactly what, what did. The central bank's balance sheet, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet skyrocketed, ballooned. At the time, it was like, oh, my God, this is massive money printing. All the media, mainstream media stories said the same thing. This is money. They're pumping trillions, trillions of yen into the Japanese economy. This is definitely going to be inflationary. It never happened. Neither the Japanese economy changed, nor did the inflation situation. The deflationary mindset, what they call in Japan, the deflationary mindset continued regardless of the level of bank reserves because – Milton Friedman got it wrong. He was stuck in his 1960s view of the 1930s in looking at a 1990s and forward problem, which you know, a monetary system that had evolved tremendously over the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. So money wasn't such a complete concept as he thought it was, and that bank reserves were not necessarily the high-powered money that he sought. So again, he was exactly right about what was wrong, but then very wrong about what to do about it. I always like to think of money as, as a product with at least four components, specification, production, distribution, utilization. So specification is, are we creating square pegs for round holes? Distribution or production is what the media and financial press seems to focus on. They've, print, they've printed so much of it, so there's, that's going to be it. That's all we need. But as we're talking about right here, and the Fed researchers were saying, what about distribution? And then we haven't even talked about utilization. Does the economy actually want to take the risk and go out and use this money? So there's at least four steps that I can think of. And I'm from Arizona State, so you know there's many more steps than that. Jeff, I think the link to our present day is obvious. But just sort of wrap it up, the Bank of Japan, quantitative easing of the 90s. We've been doing it for decades. Well, I think, you know, know. that's the point, right? That's the big point. Instead of stopping, you know, after quantitative easing one and two, in fact, that was the thing. 
you know, the Bank of Japan did first quantitative easing in March 2001, which was quickly followed by a second. And already, I mean, look, if you got to do it twice, you should stop and think, ask yourself, does this really work? We call this powerful money printing, about the most powerful thing ever, this printing press. You got to do it twice. Already you're thinking, eh, something's not right here. So that's, I mean, ultimately the point is the Bank of Japan never sat back and thought, we got to keep, we have, it seems like we have to keep doing this quantitative easing over and over and over again. Maybe it doesn't work. And they never, ever say that. They never come to that conclusion, at least not publicly. Private conversations might be a little different, but publicly it's always, okay, we did quantitative one, quantitative easing one. It didn't work. Didn't, didn't, didn't accomplish the goals we set out for it. Um, the next one's got to be bigger. So it's always about finding the right magic number because we're convinced that QE must work. It must work. We just don't have the right number for it. And so it's this constant, constant process of bigger, bigger, bigger. What's the right number? And in Japan, ultimately, that cultivated, uh, culminated in 2000, April 2013 with QQE. QQE was going to be the biggest, most powerful, obscene form of unbelievable money printing ever unleashed on humanity. It was going to put everyone else to shame. Even Paul Krogman was happy with it. He thought this was, okay, you got to be irresponsible. This is totally irresponsible money printing. And they went nuts. They, 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 you know, they did exactly what they said they were going to do, except the economy didn't respond. Inflation didn't respond. It didn't work again. So we have the ultimate, ultimate form of QE, this QQE, that was started in April of 2013, which is a little over seven years ago. And guess what? QQE is ongoing. It's still happening. They're still doing it. In fact, they're talking about, I think they've already settled on expanding it again. So, you know, again, it's, what are we missing here, guys? What are you missing? What is the economy missing? Because we have all the same signals that we had in the, in the 1990s, which are bond yields at low. And of course, Japanese bond yields are most often negative. So that tells you, again, banks in the system, the, the money holders, the money creators, are only interested in the safest, most liquid instruments. They're not interested in, in going out into the real economy and taking advantage of risk-adjusted opportunities. They're only holding the most liquid instruments, instruments, which means, again, tight money. We've done all of this, quote-unquote, money, uh, central bank money printing in the form of bank reserves, yet the bond yields are telling us, that's not money, guys. You're not doing money printing. And oh, by the way, the economy inflation second the bond yield view, not your view. So that's what we got to take away Japan is, Stop doing this, okay? There's a point where you got to look at the evidence, you got to look at the economy, you got to look at bond yields and stop, you know, trying to argue with the bond market and say it's wrong and say maybe they know something that we don't. Maybe quantitative easing is not money printing. Maybe bank reserves are not high-powered money, and that maybe we should start figuring out what is. That's really the issue here: is that we're following, as you pointed out, the right at the beginning, Japan was a case to avoid. And yet the entire world is following them far more closely than they ever should. Well, Jeff, I believe you're the only person in the world that actually knows what version or what vintage of Japanese QE we're on. You have a table that you bring up every once in a while whenever you write about Japan. And in there, you've kept track of the different flavors of QE that Japan has implemented since 2001. And I believe that we're on number 24 with the latest iteration. Uh, I know there's that quote regarding the fact that if you repeat the same thing over and over, that's the definition of insanity. But we also have to consider that the 
ultimate answer to everything, as Douglas Adams once wrote, is 42. So I think we're a little bit over halfway there. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> 42, can you imagine QE42? What would that even look like? The Bank of Japan buying trees. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's it's absurd to even consider. But that you know, we're 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 long past the uh, the idea of absurd. We're we're way into you know Alice's Wonderland here because it's it's completely nuts. It really is. And again, it it's it's one of the complex things in relationship I have with Milton Friedman is I want to admire the guy because there was so much he did, but then you know. There's so much that, that that you just you know you have to shake your head and thought and think well because he said this, it gained so much credibility and that may be one of the reasons why it stuck around so long. The great monetarist, the guy who invented the monetarist school, says this is what we should do. He wrote about it in a Monetary History in 1963. He admonished the Bank of Japan harshly in 1997-98. So you know we're doing what he said. It's you know maybe the guy was wrong. Well, it's only been 20 years in Japan. It's only been 12 years in the rest of the world. I think we need a little bit more time. Sarcasm in case it's not coming across. Jeff, I will talk to you again next week.